0: Welcome to Advertising Will Save Us, the podcast that looks at how the ad industry can move the world forward culturally, socially, environmentally, and creatively. I'm Dan Lucy, Chief Creative Officer of Havas New York. I'm Myra Nussbaum, President and Chief Creative Officer
1: of Havas Chicago, and welcome to Episode Six. We hope you enjoyed today's talk, and I don't know, maybe even learned something. We sure did.
0: Each week, we'll be speaking to a different inspiring business leader, creative ad tech watchdog, writer, or activist to show how through its power to reach millions of people, our industry advertising, however ironic this may sound, can save us.
1: As always, we'll start by acknowledging our faults as an industry, because we all know that advertising hasn't always had the best reputation for making the world a better place.
0: So We asked people on social what they find really problematic about the advertising industry, and this week we heard from Doton Bello. Sorry, apologies if I'm saying your name wrong, uh, but it's a great quote. They write, "...I think the most annoying bit of advertising is the hate from the inside the industry. There's an overwhelming amount of pessimism." Been in this industry over a decade, and although there's enough to hate, I love it, and I owe so much to it. So for me, less hate, more passion, if you will. Myra, uh, I think we have to talk about this.
1: Yes, I totally agree, even though I think I'm on the pessimistic side a lot of the times. Dan, I think you can agree with that. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard not to be pessimistic, and I do think that this industry attracts people with a higher level of skepticism, which can be very healthy, right? Because it keeps us honest, but it can't turn to deep
0: negativity. Yeah, I agree. I It's almost the optimists among us that have an easier time, because mm-hmm. I think just the nature of what we do, I mean, I think there's so many ways our ideas can die, right? Yes. There's so many things that could happen. Our industry turns on a dime. And I think that, If you're the kind of person that can wake up each day and believe something good can happen, uh, you have the energy to kind of create new work, put new work out there, and things do happen. And it's interesting. You have to remind yourself because it's easy to get down. I almost yeah. think that it might be less realistic to be this optimistic, but it's yeah. almost like a personality defect that benefits people in our industry. And, and then I also go back to I, I love the people, and you spoke about they're pessimistic, and I think they're pessimistic in the right way. The people in our industry, because I don't, I don't think they're full of shit. So if I'm being Mm -hmm. honest, right, whether they're optimists at heart, I don't think they're full of shit. I don't think that they're quick to drink the Kool-Aid. I think they, they're curious by nature. And so they'll kind of pull some strings and they'll really look at things. And I think they, we have again, maybe even just speaking for the, for the creatives among us, we have an ability to kind of see things for how they really are and Mm -hmm. to kind of understand them, embrace them and, and kind of bring them life. Because if it's not authentic, it's, it's, we're almost all allergic. So I think that the people in our industry can make a difference, want to make a difference, and are making a difference overall. So I do think that more positivity, and I think we should be less hard on the industry as a whole.
1: We have to see the bright side, the positive outcomes, and lean into... The optimism like you said. If you have a beef with our industry, please tweet us at, at Havas hashtag advertising will save us or email podcastfeedback at Havas.com. This week, we're joined by Dana Thomas. Dana is a best-selling author, veteran journalist, and currently a contributing editor of British Vogue. Most recently, she is the author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes. While researching the book, Dana traveled the globe to research the dark side of the fashion industry and to find and celebrate the visionaries fighting to change the industry for the better. Dana also hosts The Green Dream, a podcast focused on sustainability
0: and human rights. Dana, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I believe you're our first guest who is joining us from Paris, if our information is true. Um, from Paris's
2: <laughs> Left Bank.
0: Yeah, there we go. I love that. Can you start off by telling us a bit about who you are in your career? I mean, you're obviously fascinating, and you know, you're a big time person in the fashion industry, and uh, you're sort of a multi hyphenate. So, just tell us a little bit about your journey and and what you do. And then, please, if you could critique Myra and um, my outfit as well, since you are such an um, expert in the fashion world. Describe to the listeners what what, what we're wearing.
2: Okay. Well, I'm I'm a 30 year veteran foreign correspondent. I I write about fashion, but I write about other things too, culture, arts, decor, politics, news. I I started at the Washington Post in Washington, D.C. back in the late 80s under the legendary editor Ben Bradley. Oh, yes, I did. (laughs) And he was as hot and fabulous as, as he is depicted in the movies. I loved Ben. But I married a Frenchman, so I moved to Paris in 1992, and I've been here ever since as a foreign correspondent. And now I'm the European Sustainability Editor for British Vogue. Wow. And then, more importantly, I have a podcast too. It's called The Green Dream with Dana Thomas. And it is a feature-like podcast about all things having to do with sustainability in the environment and planet and people. But from a positive point of view, I call it the podcast of hope.
1: Oh, we love that. That's sort of what we're hoping to do with ours as well. So that's why we're so excited to have you here as our guest. Can you um, tell us how you...
0: The outfits, Myra. Oh,
1: I
2: didn't do the outfits yet. But you can only see like four inches of them. So about what you're wearing, I see a very cool denim jacket that's kind of washed in a grayish black has a nice look and works really well against your background, which is also kind of a brown wash. <laughs> There's, you know, and, and I think a black T-shirt is, you know, all in all, a really good, solid look that's kind of timeless, dateless. You could Excellent. be 1995, you could be today, you could be 2010. Always appropriate. I Kind of think of it like, I mean... I think he did. He wear a denim jacket or a leather jacket, Harrison Ford when he was in Star Wars. But he's that kind of like you know Harrison Ford chill chilling look, right? Oh, and he's working a beer can in the back no, too. He's no, no, like it's a
0: seltzer can. It's a seltzer. seltzer. No,
2: we know it's 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 Milwaukee's finest. And, <laughs> and Myra, I can't quite see. I see like large print flowers on black. Is it a shirt? Is it a blouse? Is it a dress? It's
1: a, it's a blouse, I believe, but I should probably be wearing what Dan's wearing because that's what I'm most comfortable in. Yeah, it's just a, I actually wore something from Zara today because no! I know that's going to come up in conversation. Just
2: say no. Let's quote Nancy Reagan. I know. Just
1: say no. <laughs> I like to call it vintage Zara though because it is around eight or nine years old. Oh, I tend to, I know. And it's still and holding up. I don't wow. wash my clothes that often. Well, that's, that's a good a, thing. Yeah, we'll, well, we can talk about that later. But, yeah, I, I know how to, like, care for things. But, yeah, I am wearing some fast fashion today just for this conversation.
2: Okay, it's a prop. <laughs> we'll allow it for a prop.
1: So tell us, Dana, how did you make this shift um, into talking about sustainability? When did that happen for you, or has it always been sort of underlying in
2: your work? I think it's always been part of not just in my work, but in my life. You know, I'm a kid who grew up in the 70s when we had student teachers who were hippies, Mm -hmm. you know, who had us weaving God's eyes and peace signs and working out on on the lawn outside and you know, and we're protesting on weekends against the Vietnam War. And I remember the first Earth Day when I was a kid, we planted a bunch of little trees and in, in made a forest at our school. So, you know, it's always been part of my education. And then my mother always had an organic garden and, you know, and I rode horses and we always kept the manure and put it in the fields. And, you know, so this has always been, even though I grew up in suburban America, you know, my pony's mm-hmm. manure went to the garden. So it, it was part of, you know, my education that, you know, it all kind of works together. And so it's always been part of my life. And I always cared about things like recycling and having grown up during the energy crisis when we used to cut back our heat, you know, and freeze to death, (laughs) put on an extra sweater. So it's never not been part of my life. And then when I was a teenager living in Europe, I, I moved to Paris when I was 18 and I was a model. I remember going to Germany for a a modeling gig in Hamburg and I was invited to a cocktail party, a cocktail party, I mean, (laughs) 19, okay, just a party, whatever. (laughs) And it was hosted by a bunch of young people from the Green Party, Petra Kelly's Green Party, when this was just brand new. I think she founded it in like 1978, 79, somewhere in there. And this was like 1982 or 83. It was the first time I'd ever been to a party that was all vegetarian Mm. or even vegan and I'd never even heard... I mean, I knew kind of some vegetarians, they were old hippies, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and the health food stores back then were burlap bags on the floor, you know, like it was right. pretty rustic and, and it was mama cats-like people running them. <laughs> so, um, so to see these sort of really hip, cool German kids, you know, sort of like sprocket-like kids talking about Petra Kelly and the green movement and eating, you know, all this cool vegetarian, you know, tofu. And I was like, whatever, where am I? This is so not 1980s America, right? Right. The the Reagan revolution. So it was, it really kind of started drilling into my brain that, you know, this is something that's everywhere all the time and needs to be paid attention to. I've always been trained from those Washington Post days to be sort of a you know, a zeitgeist hunter. And for me, one of the things that I was noticing as I kept reading was there were two things. There was a movement to reshoring, a backlash against globalization and companies that were starting to bring manufacturing back to America. Mm -hmm. And, um, And a shift to slow fashion, a real rise in the slow fashion movement, which was about making things beautifully, slowly, To order, not mass producing, not overproducing, using noble materials, you know, such as cotton and hemp, linen and silk and wool, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: preferably organic and natural dyes and, you know, sewing things by hand and crafting by hand and using natural materials like bamboo for buttons or mother of pearl instead of plastic. And I just, I kept seeing these things happening and I was listening to them and paying attention to them. And I just opened a file. That's what I do. I open a file and I start dropping things in it. And, and suddenly it suddenly it just became clear to me that this was the future.
0: Okay. So your book Fashionopolis, it's the price of fast fashion and the future of clothes it's it's a real eye opener and it's it's a real insight into the way the apparel industry works. You know, clothes are meant to make us feel good, and yet you point out that um, so much of the stuff we wear has kind of this terrible past, right? I mean, from the sweatshops to to, to all that kind of stuff. So, when did you realize? I mean, you have speaking about this a little bit before, but like, when did you realize this was the book you had to write right now, and this is what you needed to kind of educate um, consumers of fashion about?
2: Well, part of it, you know, we always say when you write a book, you want to write the book for one specific person. And my first book, Deluxe, I wrote for my mother because my mother was like, oh, Burberry, it's such a beautiful old company and aren't they just doing great things? And I'm like, mother, what are you talking about? They make everything in China and they sell it in outlets. No, <laughs> and it's it's not what you think it is. You're just believing the old hype of the old brands and the right. marketing message. But it's, you know, this global cor- publicly traded corporation that, you know, produces stuff on mass and just charges a lot of money for it, you know. And so I kept this in mind thinking, There's a whole swath of consumers out there who think that, you know, these luxury brands are still these elite, small family-owned houses that do everything by hand. And of course, sometimes the marketing message really says that and they got in trouble for it. One of them, I think it was Louis Vuitton, got sanctioned by the British government for false advertising because they had recreated that Vermeer painting, the girl with like, you know, sitting, sitting in earrings, yeah. something like, you know, that kind of painting where they're sitting there sewing by candlelight as if that's how yeah. a, ha- a Louis Vuitton bag is actually made. Nah, it's made on machines in mass, you know? So, um, so I wrote that book with my mother in mind. And mm-hmm. this one I wrote with my now 22 year old daughter in mind. And when it came out, she was 17 because I could see that she and her girlfriends all thought that fast fashion was the greatest thing there was. And they knew that fast food wasn't thanks to the great book, and even if they didn't read it, that's the fallout of the great book, Fast Food Nation. Mm-hmm. You know, the backlash to fast food came after that and the rise of the organic markets and organic, you know, everything came up in response to the omnivores dilemma and to Fast Food Nation. So I wanted to have that same kind of impact on the fashion industry and really try to explain, especially to young people or people who who feel like they can't afford better clothes that in fact they can if we just buy less, buy better. And by buying into this message that cheap is fine and it doesn't impact the planet and it doesn't impact humanity, that it's just great to have a new dress on Friday night, they're actually contributing to their own poverty because everybody along the supply chain to create that outfit was not paid what they are worth. The right. value, the human value has just been slashed to pennies. And if they're not paid what they're worth and you're in, you're endorsing this system, you are also not getting paid what you're worth. And that's why you can't afford it. So it's all of a piece. And that's what I really try to explain through the book that, you know, we, we all have to think about these things and it's not just clothes. It could have been anything. I use clothes to explain the impact of, you know, our modern society and industrialization on planet and humanity. But it's much easier to explain it by describing how jeans are made. We all wear jeans. At any given point of the day, half the world is wearing jeans. I mean, you're wearing a jean jacket. I imagine it's going with jeans on, on its pants too. Full denim. Right, Dan? Denim, exactly. You're in denim. Denim is, you know, the most worn item we have. And I thought, how better to explain to anybody the intricate and complicated system of economic and environmental impact today than to dissect a pair of blue jeans. So, Dana,
1: for our listeners and also for Dan and I, can you define what fast fashion is in a couple sentences?
2: Absolutely. Fast fashion is... Exactly as it sounds. It's sort of the fashion equivalent of fast food. Clothes that are made at lightning speed, massive amounts that are super cheap, made with inferior materials that don't last long and are sold in boutiques and stores worldwide. A huge network. And the the business model of fast fashion is volume, moving volume and high gigantic profit margins. So the people who own fast fashion brands are among the wealthiest people in the world. I think In the top 50 richest people in the world right now, six are fashion company owners, and of those four maybe are fast fashion owners. Mm. The only industry that has just as many billionaires is the tech industry. So that shows you that it makes a handful of people really rich while impoverishing the planet and humanity.
1: You're making this H&M shirt feel very hot right now. I may end up just having to take it off.
2: <laughs> Actually, you know what's making it hot is the, the all polyester. that polyester in it, which is essentially <laughs> plastic that does not breathe. That's you're, why you're hot.
1: You know what's happened to me? I So I grew up similarly to you. My mom was a big hippie, feminist, and we lived on a farm, not a suburb, like a farm farm, wow. far away from any suburb. Composted before anybody. I kind of say my parents were the original hipsters because they were pickling yeah. and composting. Yeah, and, my mom
2: was pickling. We had a great aunt from Texas who made, who had a recipe for award winning. She won like the Dallas award winning sweet and sour. No, yeah, sweet butter and butter pickles. Sweet and butter pickles. Red, oh my gosh. Bread and butter pickles? Yeah, bread and, oh and butter pickers.
1: And then with fashion, we shopped only used. So, or secondhand clothing. But To kind of connect the dots here, how, for me, even though I grew up that way in a very sustainable family, um, I kind of lost my way. I, you know, went off on my own, went to college, moved to Chicago. I'm really busy. I have three kids. How do I know really, truly what
2: I'm buying? Look at the ingredients. Think of of polyester as like single-use plastic. You know, you're now refilling your water bottle and you have a really nice thermal water bottle. So think of, you know, you got rid of the plastic bottles and the plastic straws, get rid of the plastic clothes. Like that's a very elemental way of starting out. And also nylon, which is the same thing. The only problem is most bathing suits are made of nylon. Oh, right. But there are, and then they also have elastine for stretch. Same with your blue jeans. All that stretch is elastine, which is Petroleum based, but some, I've just recently met a company head in, in Milan who has denim milled where he's making the stretch denim using, you know, the, the, the original stretch rubber. Oh, wow. Oh. And as he's created a rubber thread that, that works like elastine, like spandex and actually holds up better. And then in theory, with these organic cotton and sustainable cotton denim jeans with this rubber in it, they're, and naturally dyed, they're biodegradable, which is great. But, you know, there's a company called EcoNeil out of Italy that takes old fishing nets and old carpeting and regenerates that nylon. So it's in its second, third, fourth, or fifth life.
1: Is there a website that's aggregating companies that, are using these more sustainable practices.
2: Retailers do have what they call their green edit or their sustainable section. that a porter has one and Matches Fashion has one. And, you know, so you can find it or you can just, there are plenty of websites out there that do sell. There's a great company I know called Rev en Veil. Oh, this is a terrible name. It's in French. So if you don't speak French, you go, what? But it means dream and green. And the short version of it R E V, and Reve-R-E-V. And reverend and then... E N O and then V E R T, Revonver. And it is a sustainable marketplace. It's like the green Amazon. Right. And everything they sell has been very well vetted. So you can just go there and you will find, you know, anything from sheeting and mattresses to clothes and shoes that's that's definitely carbon neutral or even positive. Very cool. Yeah. In
0: in your book, you talk about some of the innovations that are going to make clothing more sustainable, but you also talk a little bit about some of the the brands that are getting it right. You you mentioned Stella McCartney, Mm. um, and kind of she was green before it was cool. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and kind of what kind of actions she was taking as a brand and kind of leading the charge?
2: Well, you know, we were talking earlier about being educated by hippies. I mean, she's the daughter of one of the most famous hippies of all time. So, you know, actually two of the most famous hippies. Two of the most famous hippies of all time. So, you know, this is how she was raised. This is her ethos. This is, you know, this is who she is. So this is how she has worked since she got out of St. Martin's art school and she started her own little fashion company. And then she went to Chloe and then she started her own brand with Gucci Group. She said, I will not work with leather and I will not work with fur. Yeah. And this, everyone thought she was crazy. And now they're like, oh no, she was just ahead of the curve. Like you said, just like everyone thought Prince Charles, now King Charles was crazy for talking about the environment 50 years ago. And now they call him the climate king. So, you know, when you're ahead of the curve, you just have to wait for everyone to catch up. Stella, once she got the, the leather thing worked out and she got the fur thing worked out and she proved you could be a profitable fashion company without using these two materials, then she started looking at other things and she decided to use recycled cashmere instead of virgin cashmere. And she's making sure that her cotton is organic. As she said, if organic cotton is considered a luxury, then why aren't all luxury brands only sourcing organic cotton? Mm. Right? Great point. She she really has uh taken this idea of being a conscious brand all the way through the brand from beginning to end, materials and uh, her whole supply chain. And then there are other brands that are doing this and designers too, like Gabriella Hurst, who has her own brand in New York and then works for Chloe in Paris. And Chloe recently earned its B Corp certification, which means that it met the criteria as being both respectful to planet and humanity. And they were the first luxury brand to do so. This is how they spent COVID, rebuilding the brand from ground up to qualify for B Corp and to really change their mission. And they did, which is fantastic because it's hard for these big companies to to pivot. It really is. And there are old guys at the top who who I just heard about this the other day who say, you know, but why should we change anything? We know it works well as we have it and we make a lot of money. Why should we invest in these things that aren't tested yet and aren't aren't bankable? Why should we spend this money and lose money when we know when, in fact, all we want to do is make Make money." money.
1: I want to talk about that human impact that you just brought up and pivot to something really serious, from your book that you outline the disaster in Rana Plaza. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Um, Where for our listeners, if you're not aware of it, I wasn't, shame on me. There was a manufacturing complex in Bangladesh that collapsed in 2013 as a result of poor infrastructure and a total disregard for the safety of the workers employed there. The collapse killed more than 1,100 people and left 2,500 injured, making it the deadliest garment industry disaster in modern history. Can you tell us about covering that? And you spoke to survivors. What was that experience like, hearing their stories?
2: Well, for the book, I flew to Bangladesh. I did not go when it when it happened, mm-hmm. um, but I went— for the five-year anniversary, I've always found mm. as a journalist that sometimes the most interesting story comes after, after the story. And you go back, you revisit, and then you find out what's really happening, what the impact is, what the what the truth is. Yeah. And so I went there for the fifth anniversary and spent a few days at the factory site, which is now a big empty lot, a huge city lot. And I talked to survivors and I went to see them in their homes, one bedridden woman Her bed was, you know, just planks of wood in a shanty, a one-room shanty that she lives in with a corrugated roof that she shares with her husband. And she's 20, she was 25 or 26. She can't walk, she can't bear children. She, you know, she was crushed and she didn't get a penny or very little money from any, you know, for her injuries. The brands all said they weren't producing there and even the ones that were caught there said, not our problem, we didn't know, it was subcontracted. And the government didn't look after the people either. So, you know, it's not like you have workman's comp in Bangladesh. It it was just terrible. I met lots of people who were permanently injured, people who suffered terribly from PTSD. You know, one man said that he saw his best friends, you know, completely crushed under a cement pillar next to him. And... And some people, you know, didn't know what happened. Like they were out for in a coma for twenty days, twenty-five days. They had been in the rubble for days and were and <sighs> locals helped pull people out. It was a terrible, horrible thing. And the guy who built that factory, he did wind up in jail, but not for that, but for like tax evasion. Right. Oh, yeah. you know, sort of the Al Capone story. You right. know something something, you know, on a technical. But he did. He he bribed people. He was known as a thug. He flouted any kind of rules and safety regulations he built three floors without permits he you know strong armed people into selling him land for cheap or just took it over you know he was a bad guy he was a bad bad guy he was a gangster and that factory collapse did push the industry into putting in more safety rules especially with fires because it followed less than a year after a big factory fire that killed more than 100 people also in, in the same area. But still, it's it's sketchy. It's bad. And people, when I went there, people were earning $68 a month. That was the minimum wage to work in a garment factory. At the time, Zara's owner was worth $68 billion. Can you imagine? That's a no. lot of zeros difference. i was people- taking my
1: shirt off here we and, go
2: for the Uh-oh. podcast. Right. I'm taking right. it
1: off. Yeah. I can't. Don't worry. There's a tank top underneath. It's made uh, of cotton. Da, 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 okay. So, so Dana, sorry, I had to do it. I feel, <laughs> oh, no. I feel really, really grossed out.
0: That was a moment. Um, by
1: having that shirt on. But don't burn it. Cause it'll just melt. No, I'm going to have to like turn it into a stuffed animal for my kids or something. I don't know.
0: So Dana, what's the problem here? So it's like, so even if you're a brand that thinks they're doing the right thing, right, you hire a factory to make your garments, right, or made in USA or whatever it is, and then they subcontract out to somebody else, and then where does the accountability stop? Like, So these brands, a lot of them, do you believe that they truly don't know who is making their stuff, or do they just choose not to look into it because they know it's bad?
2: I mean- It's both. You know, there are surely brands who have no idea how their clothes are being made because they've lost track of the supply chain in Central America or in Southeast Asia. That's far away. You Mm -hmm. know, businesses like Levi's, they're not in the business of making clothes anymore. They just design clothes and they're in the business of marketing. They actually don't make anything anymore except some prototypes. They contract everything. They closed all their factories and they got out of the business of manufacturing as so many, as most fashion companies did during the 1990s and the early 2000s in this huge wave of globalization. They shipped everything offshore to places where they don't have to pay maternity leave. They don't have to pay vacation. They don't have to pay anything. You know, Levi's... I write about a, an amazing case story in Georgia. Levi's had a factory in a lovely town at the foot of the Appalachian Mountains, and they they contributed to the community. They they sponsored the little league base uniforms and they bought the field lights for the for the local stadium and they they paid for the book stacks in the li- local library and they always gave, you know, little christmas gifts to the folks in the old age home. They were part of the community. It was what was called corporate paternalism. Plus everybody was in a union and they were well paid and they had off vacation and they had the, you know, they were looked after. Well, when that factory closed, that town died like so many in the south. Because not only did everybody lose their jobs and then and couldn't do things like pay for the kids to go to swim clubs in the summer, and then the, everyone moved out and then the schools started closing because nobody could get a job in the area, but also all that other extra support to the community. You know, they paid for the jaws of life, things like that. That was gone, too. And instead of spending all that money, they moved over to places like Bangladesh and they just said, let somebody else worry about it. And they lost track of their supply chain. But in L.A., there were companies that are L.A.-based and they were making clothes in L.A. And they would get busted by the labor department for working for supplying, you know, having suppliers that were sweatshops. That I visited them where people are earning $2 an hour, even though state minimum wage is 15 and every time they got busted you know they said oh it's not our problem we'd had no idea our our contractor subcontracted to the sweatshop but you know they're in LA okay they're yeah. just down the street you you if you don't know where your clothes are being made in the same neighborhood or the same city where you are based then you're you're just not very careful in your business and last year the state of California agreed with that philosophy and i actually wrote an op-ed for the LA times about it and governor newsom signed a law saying, too bad for you, even if you didn't know your contractor subcontracted, you are still responsible for the wage theft, it's called.
1: So beyond manufacturers being thoughtful about where things are being made, I think it's also interesting who they're choosing to be their ambassadors of sustainability, specifically Boohoo choosing Kourtney Kardashian uh, as their sustainability ambassador. What do you know about that? And if you do know something about it, how do you feel?
2: Well, I mean, I think it's more Courtney Kardashian agreed to be a part of Boohoo rather than Boohoo choosing Courtney Kardashian. Who has the power in that relationship? Courtney Kardashian, right? True. But I found it very disheartening that nobody in their entourage said did a little bit of homework, just even googled Boohoo and said, "Oh, this is a bad idea." Because it's a very bad idea for for Brand Kardashian, you know, who've managed to somehow get themselves on Disney Plus. I mean, talk about cleaning up your image. <laughs> and uh and yet here they are aligning themselves with one of the worst violators of humanity and planet in the fashion business. I mean, Boohoo's been busted for sourcing in sweatshops in England where they paid workers two pounds an hour. And this is just, you know, up the road from where their headquarters is. This isn't in Southeast Asia. And they they sell mass volumes of really cheap clothes for which people were paid pennies and have are made of toxic chemicals that are terrible for the environment and encourage you to just burn through clothes and throw them away. It's it's just a, a complete disaster. And what the Kardashians are doing thinking that this is okay to even slightly be linked to this brand I do not know.
1: I have to hope. Like I you hope said, they, in I the, wish
2: they would call me and let me come <laughs> consult for them, and I'll be like, "No, are you no, sure you no. want that job?" Red, red light, uh, red light. <laughs> I do. You have to hope
1: that maybe she. They're getting in there, and they have a positive agenda, and they're going to help
2: Boohoo. No way. Clean
1: it up. No I'm, way. We'll you, see. Only time will tell. But I. I agree. It's the, hard. The to- cleaning
2: up cannot be done by the Kardashians. It has to be done by the owners. And, and the owners have no intention to. I mean, the entire business model like Shein is built on producing toxic clothes in mass for people to burn through at lightning speed. Yeah,
0: I was listening to your podcast, The Green Dream, and I learned that um the second hand fashion industry is a 130 billion dollar industry worldwide which is just kind of blowing my mind and that it's going to be bigger than fast fashion in 2030 and and i and i think that those are some kind of crazy stats and that was really eye opening to me and i know some celebs are now wearing only you know wearing vintage on on red carpets or whatever and they're kind of talking about that I almost wonder, like, what we could do as advertisers, Myra and I, to to get behind some of these brands that are pushing vintage or rewear. I mean, are there any kind of are there any kind of bigger stores or sites that are doing this that we can kind of reach out to, or is it just all kind of a collection of small vintage shops?
2: Oh no, no, there's loads of big platforms and and even some medium platforms. Of course, there's the Real Real, which was a big, big, mm-hmm. big one, though they've been having a bit of trouble, I think, in the post COVID era. Yeah, but you know, I'm. I mean, I'm amazed at how many there are. There's one in England called Hardly Ever Worn It. There's another one that's worldwide called Luxury Promise. They're all over the place. And then, of course, I just recently interviewed Cameron Silver of Decades, which was one of the original... Uh, secondhand couture shops in Hollywood. And he dresses the red carpet people, but also, you know, just anybody who wants a really beautiful look for a special occasion. And he's available online as, as well as in his shop in West Hollywood. And then he does trunk shows all over the country. So he'll come to Nashville and he'll come to Houston and Dallas and show you some really great stuff. So you should always check him out. But this is a, no, this is a burgeoning, burgeoning business. This is no longer just the local charity shop. This is a big, big business, and a lot of, or a lot of luxury brands are now getting into it directly, where they'll say, you know, we're going to sell off some of our own leftovers or we're going to buy back things or we will work with secondhand sellers to verify and, and assure you that this is the real deal. It's it is the future of fashion because yeah. we need to keep these clothes in circulation like everything else. You know, I drive a 1964 Mustang while it may be a gas guzzler. It is 58 years old. <laughs> and it's, cool, Dana, it's pretty cool. It's oh, pretty, so, cool. Cool. pretty cool. So, you know, keeping cool. it in circulation, it's better for me to keep yeah. restoring and keeping that car running and using it alternating that with my, my, my bicycle than it is for me to keep going out and buying a new car every year. You know, there, there are different ways to market secondhand. So it's doesn't seem like it's second rate and Patagonia, Patagonia will let oh, you bring in your amazing. old gear. So they'll buy it back, give you a credit, recondition it and sell it. H&M does that as
1: well. I don't know how much I believe it. I feel like so skeptical, mm. but I have to. Their, their
2: original product isn't quite as sturdy as Patagonia. Right.
1: Did you see, I think it's called Loop, the Loop Store, the concept store where I think they launched it in China. But you could bring in an item, put it in a machine, and it comes out. It's a sweater, and it becomes a pair of pants.
2: Exactly. This Um, is the future of fashion. We have to keep these things in circulation and not dump them into landfill. Because two-thirds are made of plastic— being polyester and nylon, so they never biodegrade.
1: Yeah, Do you, I have to ask one more question specifically about advertising, what Dan and I do for a living. How can advertising contribute to a better relationship with our clothing? How can we encourage people to be more responsible or thoughtful about what they wear?
2: Well, in all these different ways, like talk about circularity through advertising, you know, talk about renting through advertising, talk about things like wash your clothes less. You talk, You mentioned in, at the top of the show that you don't wash your clothes very often. Well, that's great. We wash our clothes too much. You should never wash your blue jeans or at least not very often. Wash them, you know, when they start being able to walk out the house themselves, <laughs> then you can wash them. But until then, you know, like denim doesn't like to be washed. I saw, you know, original le- Levi's that were from the 19th century. They'd never been washed and they'd just been passed down from minor to minor each time they struck gold than, or silver than they gave their, wow. they took their money, ran and gave their their jeans to the next guy to crawl around in the mines. So, you know, there's there's plenty of ways to perpetuate this message that burning through stuff and throwing it away is not a responsible way of living. It's not a green way of living. And we will never meet the Paris Climate Agreement goals set, you know, for 2050 if we continue to live that way. And we all need to live a greener life
0: it's a really important point and i think that we all have to do our part to get that message out there and to kind of practice what we preach i think people will follow and if brands start buying back and i think advertising as advertisers and marketers i do think it's up to us to kind of push for that i know that we work with some laundry detergents Globally, I think there's one called Vanish in the UK that works with our UK agency, and they have a whole program called um, Rewear. Generation okay. Rewear, right? Exactly, and it's and it's encouraging, and it's kind of good. It's like because there are some detergents that are easier on the clothes than others, and they're just better, the, and they're kind of encouraging you to like take good care of your garments, right? So you don't throw them out as much, or look to buy vintage, and then their detergent will actually get them clean, so you feel like you know even though it's from somebody else or it's sitting. In a store, and it might have that kind of vintagey smell. You can kind of clean it off, but but again, I think I think that's really important.
2: You know, it's interesting that the person who told me wash your clothes less and wash them on the short cycle and wash them with cold water that'll give them a longer life, and you're using less energy and you're using less water. You know who said that? The head of Procter and Gamble's soap and laundry division. So right. clearly, the industry is you know trying to be green up and said, listen, give your clothes a longer life and do us all a favor, you know, save help your wallet, help the planet. It's great. People
1: get it. Everybody's coming around. Well, not everybody, but <laughs> more people. And I think also
2: brands should just really trumpet, but honestly, they're they're green cred. I've, I've heard of some brands who are very green and don't talk about it. And meanwhile, you have plenty who are greenwashing who say, oh, we're only using sustainable and green products. And then you dig a little deep and you're like, no, those sequins have, have petroleum in them. And no, that, that plastic sealant on your handbags is PVC. No, 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 no. So, yeah. you know, I think honesty in your marketing is key. I think if you tell the truth about how what your green cred is, and it turns out to be true, you know, that it's verifiable, Uh, consumers will trust your brand more. And if you get busted because you're just like weaving a green web, a greenwashing web, and you get found out, that will wound your brand deeply. So I think, you know, truth in advertising is incredibly important. And if you've got green cred, make the most of it. It's very funny because once I said something about this to a luxury brand executive and he called me back, are we allowed to swear on this show? Yeah. In a French accent. And he said, but we are not like McDonald's. McDonald's makes shit that makes people fat, oh to which my- I could only think, and you make shit that makes people broke. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's, a, that's a great comeback. So one, one last question. We always wrap up each podcast, and I know that everybody has to play their role in kind of making fashion more sustainable and making it more equitable for d- different people who are working in the actual factories around the world. But we like to think that marketing could play a huge role in, in issues like these. So Dana, we have to ask you, do you think advertising uh, will save us on this one, or at least partially?
2: I think advertising will definitely help. Definitely, definitely help. Because how else do we get the message out there? It's how you you communicate to the broader public. And, and I feel like if, if the right message is sent to the broader public, that yes, you will see an impact. I mean, that's why I'm making so much noise with my book. I'm, you know, still out here banging the drum for my book three years after publication, because I think it's an important subject that people need to know about. And the more we talk about it and the more the message is disseminated, the more positive impact we'll have.
1: Well, we'll beat the drum with you and we'll tune in to your podcast for sure, Green Dream. And please, everybody that listens, tune in to hear Dana talk more about how you can be part of the solution to fast fashion. Thank you, Dana.
2: Thank you.
0: So she thinks advertising could play a part. And Look, this is an issue that, speaking personally, I don't think enough about. I think that it's easy to when you start thinking about sustainability, my brain starts to go to like recycling and like you know what I mean, and like earth friendly materials and all that. But it is true. It's it's probably, you know, that fast fashion and, and on some hands it's great because it provides Really nice items to the masses, but at the same time, it encourages us all to not buy five great pieces or 10 great pieces and keep them for a couple of years, but to kind of cycle in and cycle out large numbers of clothing that just end up in landfills. And and because they're so cheap, they need to really exploit a population, a third world population, in order to make them.
1: I mean, I just feel like I need to go home and start over. With my whole closet. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot, but I, I think it's easy to be overwhelmed by it or to think it's okay if I buy some cheap, fast fashion, but really talking to her makes me feel differently. I've known it's wrong for years, and while I don't buy a lot of clothes and I tend to rewear my things for a very long time, I still have an H&M shirt on or a Zara shirt on some days. And I can do better than that. So she gave me a lot of inspiration to be more thoughtful about it. And also what I'm dressing my three kids in. I mean, I have a lot of impact on the planet right now just by the sheer fact that I'm dressing
0: for humans. Yeah, it seems like there's a huge business opportunity in recycling kids' clothing. Yes.
1: Fashion's not going to go away ever. We just have to do it more responsibly.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Okay, so we have one more segment for all of you before we wrap it up. We call it The Kids Are Alright, and each week we'll bring on someone brand new to the industry to hear how they plan to change it for the better. This week, we're hearing from Jordan Bravely, a junior copywriter at Havas, Chicago.
2: I'm Jordan Gravely. I'm a junior copywriter at Havas, and I have been a copywriter since 2021. I think there's like a couple different things that I definitely feel like advertising can do, but I think one of the biggest ones is that we have so much power over the people that consumers are seeing, the images, the kind of impact that who we get to see and the stories that get told is so, so crucial and so powerful in a really subliminal way. And then kind of in the same vein, making sure that the people that are making ads are reflective of the world around us so we can make sure the messaging that we're putting out is reflective of the world as it truly exists.
1: Thank you for listening. Advertising Will Save Us is an intelligent squared production in partnership with Havas US.
0: The producers are Isabella Soames, Yosula Alaranchola and technical assistance from Mark Roberts. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend, tell that friend to tell that friend and so on. Um, and please, all of you subscribe and leave us a glowing review or at least email us and tell us uh, what you'd rather hear.